Good morning. Good morning. It's very good to see <clears throat> excuse me, everyone this morning. Good Mother's Day to you moms. We're happy that you're here. We're so blessed by you. A few announcements this morning. The first is for you junior highers and high schoolers. There is no spin this afternoon because of Mother's Day and celebration of it. Spend time with your moms. I had one high schooler tell me, I think you should have spin because it's Mother's Day. She will want me out of the house. <laughs> So moms, don't like make me look bad. I said, no, she'll want you to be with him. No sp- be seated. Well, it is a special day for us as a church family when we can honor and recognize our ladies here this morning. And I recognize that there are ladies here that are moms, some are not. Some are past the mothering stage and now grandmothering. Some are single, some are married, some widowed. But it is important that we look at God's word together as something that as a church community, we've united together to support, to encourage, and to build up this institution that God himself has made. And that would be our hope this morning as we dive into God's word together. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to direct your attention first the first epistle of Paul to Timothy and the second chapter before we turn to our study text this morning. Join me in prayer. Father God, we do thank you for your presence here this morning, first and foremost, without which we would be lost and without a true shepherd. So we ask that your spirit would come and direct us in our thinking, direct us in our worship, Give us hearts that are grateful to a God that redeems sinners. Give us hearts, Father, that love you as our heavenly Father, that loves our Savior Jesus Christ, your Son, and loves the Spirit that has breathed life into us and that indwells us now as your church and your people. And we ask that it's your Spirit that guides our thoughts. Give us grateful hearts. Give us understanding hearts. Give us discerning hearts. Thank you for each one that is here this morning. We are grateful for those that you have raised up um, in their health and their struggles with health. Praise God. We see Gary and Mary here with us this morning and for the strength that you've given to them. We're thankful for the return of Nathan Brown to his family and to us. We pray for those that are yet deployed out into the field, that you would protect them, not only physically, but spiritually as well. And Father, in our gathering here this morning, I pray that you would unite us together now under the authority and the ministry of your word. Give us reverence as we approached every word that you have given to us in the scriptures. Give me the ability to speak clearly and well on these things this morning. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. Paul writes, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women, making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. 
For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Now, while our study is going to be from 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning, I wanted to begin here in 1 Timothy 2 because of the focus that Paul places on a mother's influence in the home over her family. And by the order of creation itself, Paul is telling us that God did not appoint a wife to rule over her husband, but that the husband was to lead. And these roles were to be exercised by God's design within the church as well, as Paul points out. But Paul takes that order and he goes back to creation. And he says that the roles of men and women in the church today in the present are based on creation itself. But there was a problem in creation, wasn't there? Sin happened. And if you put yourself back in the garden, we see something troubling take place in regard to the roles of men and women. Now, I've tried to put myself in the context of these things before, and if you just think about Adam and Eve being perfectly made specimens, And we've all read those children's stories out of the Bible to our kids with the pictures. And when it gets to the Garden of Eden, there's Adam and Eve. And if I could be discreet about this, the leaves were on the trees, not on the people. We just attended this conference yesterday, and the pastor that was preaching was describing how life is without the children in the home, and he's chasing mama around the house, and I have never heard the word naked used so many times in a sermon by a preacher. It was getting awkward and uncomfortable, to be sure. But I think we see the scene in the garden. And if you picture this perfect woman coming to this perfect man and saying to Adam, her husband, here's this fruit, and it's really good. And we don't see, if you go back to Genesis, Adam debating anything. He doesn't say, now, wait a minute, Eve. Where'd you get that? Who told you this? And how do you know this is good? Adam says nothing. He just takes it and eats, doesn't he? He wasn't deceived. And you can almost picture this perfect woman standing before him with this fruit, without leaves, and saying, Adam, as she bats her eyes, take and eat. He says, hey, okay, okay, yeah, and he eats. What we see in that picture, at the very moment of sin, at the very moment that the fall took place, is a failure to fill the role that God designed for men and women. Eve subverted the position of the husband. She listened to this guy that looks like a snake. And she goes to Adam and said, I've done this thing. I didn't ask your permission. Now I want you to do it. And Adam forsakes his role, doesn't he? The moment sin took place, here are two people that forsook the roles that God had designed them to have. That's the moment sin has begun. But Paul adds to that story. He said, though fall has taken place, 
though Adam and Eve both forsook their God-designed roles, he says to the woman in verse 15, and this is to be taught in the church, the women will be preserved. They will find restoration. They will find salvation, if you will, in the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity and self-control or self-restraint. What Paul is telling the church is that mothers, women, are going to make a significant mark on the world by fulfilling the parental position within the church, caring for her children, and preparing them for the life that is ahead of them. That is, provided she walks as a woman of Christ, in gospel faith, in the love of God, in purity, holiness, sanctification, and self-control. In other words, women have the ability to transform the world, even transforming their own homes as they represent Christ, Jesus Christ, to their families. And while the secular world views this as terribly demeaning to women, in God's mind, the woman has the exalted position of caring for children as the next generation within society. And in our day, for a woman to desire to stay at home and raise children is to miss her higher calling and a career that could be very rewarding. To confine oneself to stay at home caring for children is viewed as a failure to realize one's greater potential in the professional world. Better off, the world would say, to send your children to a child care provider, a child specialist, so that you can go on and invest yourself in more important things. But that's the world's way, isn't it? It's not God's way. For a woman to bring the reflection of Christ into the home, faith, love, purity, self-control, is precious in the sight of God. And that is where God places value on a woman bringing children into the world, and raising them for God's glory. No matter if you have children or not, this is the institution of motherhood that God himself has designed. And regardless of what station of life you're at, older, younger, married, single, children or not, grandchildren or none, as a church community, we bind ourselves together, and this is what we endorse. This is what we encourage This is what we build up because of the significant gospel influence that God chooses to work through faithful women. Now turn your attention to 1 Peter chapter 3 because you will find that Peter has a similar vein in writing these words to the church. And the vein that I'm referring to is evangelistic. 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to start at verse 21 and move into chapter 3. So back up to chapter 2, verse 21. Peter writes, You have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he offered no threats but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. 
For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of the gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, the former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. I want you to know that I approached this passage very thoughtfully for Mother's Day, because it is a very unlikely Mother's Day passage. And to be sure, it is not a popular passage for the culture around us. We're living in a day and age when the roles of men and women are completely being remodeled, if you will, revamped. We're in a culture that is examining even sexual or gender identities. Our culture is rewriting the manual that God himself has provided his creation and man is choosing to be autonomous rather than to listen to our creator. They want to make their own way. And while this modern message of the culture around us is rejecting God's design, it has caused a great deal of confusion within the church as well. And clearly from 1 Peter chapter 3, this is not a new trend. This was happening back in the apostolic early church era. Peter and Paul both had to deal with these cultural confusions in the roles of gender and identity. There were cultural intrusions into the church even back then. And Peter wrote this epistle to help the church, to help believers navigate their way through the confusing culture around and the intrusions that perversions had made into the church. And there was pressure being applied to believers to conform to the world. And this pressure resulted in suffering and persecution against the church. At the same time, the culture and its traditions were these things that the world or that the Christian was saved out of. So many of these believers were engaged in the cultural norms of the day. They were saved out of them. And these are now traditions that they have to put off in favor of putting on Christ. And some of these traditions were not just social measures, but they were part of the cultic religions of the day, deeply entrenched in society. And when somebody was saved for the glory of Christ, they had to put these things off. And there was often suffering and persecution. And it's why Peter opens his epistle in chapter 1 and verse 16 Reminding us of what God said through the Old Testament prophets, we are to be holy because God is holy. The instruction that we give to families and marriages very often focuses on holiness. 
morality within the home. And especially when we speak of parenting as moms and dads, our objective is, our, is to teach our children to walk in the ways of the Lord. This is often the discussions that we have. However, what I think is often overlooked in parenting are discussions of the evangelistic roles that God has given to both moms and dads. We often approach evangelism in the parenting model more from a moralistic point of view, teaching right from wrong. But Peter here is focusing on something else. The role that God has given to women in the home to show Christ, to show Christ. We're often going to talk about biblical instruction, disciplining of our children, both very critical subjects. Further within the Christian community, we can often turn to to parenting books that guide us. We were just at a conference this weekend, and there was a whole table of Christian parenting. There's a lot of instruction, a lot of resources out there, and they're good and they're helpful. But I do believe a mistake that we often make in Christian parenting is that we can put too much confidence on methodology, on our structure, on the discipline of our home, of how we've set up things in my home. We can feel fairly confident in these methods while our children are younger and pliable, but then they become teenagers and young adults. And sometimes our methodology then seems all too ineffective. A biblical understanding of the doctrine of regeneration makes clear that conversion is a work of the Holy Spirit alone. In other words, God alone is able to change the heart of our unbelieving children. God alone is able to change the heart of our unbelieving spouse. That's a work of God. Our children are not born with believing hearts. They are born as little pagans. No matter the early years of compliance that they may give to our biblical instruction, the heart still belongs to Christ, doesn't it? And very often spouses may find themselves married to an unbeliever. It is here that the obligation is on the believing parent or believing spouse to be Christ in the home. And the most crucial role that a Christian parent has in the raising of children is to bring them up to an understanding of the gospel. And while we cannot cause saving faith within our children or our spouses, nonetheless, God uses the witness of Christ in the home to draw unsaved spouses and children to salvation in Christ. And therefore, our role as Christian parents, and this morning, Our role as Christian mothers, I say our, because this is a collective church ministry that we should be encouraging in our women, especially our young mothers. The critical role in a mom is to show your family Christ. And this is going to be my Mother's Day emphasis this season as we turn to God's word. But before I go to our text, I want to give you four reasons why I believe 1 Peter chapter 3 is necessary for today, Mother's Day, and in our culture. And number one should be most obvious. It's because of the perversion of God's creative design in our culture. We're living in a day when men and women are literally boasting in and proud of their destruction of the character that God has fashioned into men and women. 
What is femininity today? What is masculinity? These are a work of God's creation, but in our culture, what is it? It was our anniversary this week. We go to a store because of your anniversary. You got to buy something. So we go to a store, and I was supposed to get a Mother's Day shirt. We go into a store, and I'm telling you, if you walk through the men's dress section, what you see now are men's blouses. It is so revolting. They have little girly collars, and they're just enamored with flower bouquets everywhere. And I think we see what's happening in our culture, don't we? We are racing the lines between men and women. It's very popular for women to cut their hair very short. You see even cutting it bald, like men do, or like men become. Men, on the other hand, have all these hairstyles going. We are erasing the distinctions between men and women. And it shouldn't surprise us that this is a deception of God's design. And who's going to be behind that deception if not the father of lies? Second, this text is needed for our day because of the extreme, extreme emphasis that is placed on outward beauty in our culture. This overdevelopment of one's outward appearance honestly is very often intended to be sexually arousing. But at the very least, it is meant to draw inordinate attention to oneself. And this is a strong reflection of the self-centered, self-esteem, self-love culture that marks our present society. The character of the heart hardly even matters anymore. It's what you do with the out, the outward. A third reason that I believe this text is important today is I'm going to take a little bit more time here, is because of the prominence of abuses within family living today and the confused and destructive response of the world. These need to be addressed biblically. For far too many years, physical, Emotional and spiritual abuses have gone unnoticed in the church because of a a very twisted view of male headship. Abusers in the Christian community and in Christian homes will cite as their marching orders any passage that includes the word what? Submit. In the New Testament commentary by Pastor Kent Hughes, The writer of this commentary on 1 Peter chapter 3, Professor David Helms, in his introduction before he gets to the text that we're going to look at this morning, he was making note that Peter is writing this as a general statement to men and women within the family. But you will notice he doesn't deal or delve into particulars of application. And the author is saying this is because there are far too many nuances and false directions that we can go with this. And Pastor Helms made the comment that Peter leaves that work to the individual pastors of the church to work through. And then he makes this statement, and we'll bring this up on the board so you can follow along. Pastor David Helms writes, I want to say a few things about what Peter's call to submission does not mean for Christian wives. It does not mean that if your husband asks you to abandon your faith in Christ, you should do so. It does not mean that if your husband asks you to sin, you should do so. It does not mean that you should always agree with him and never present differing views. 
It does not mean that if he is unfaithful to you, you are left without biblical recourse. It does not mean that if he abuses you physically or abandons you through incessant verbal humiliation, you must remain quietly in the home and accept the daily cruelty of that relationship at all costs. Pastor Helms then concludes this admonition with an additional point. He writes, Let me say this to the many women who are experiencing trying times and are asking questions around the edges of this text that we're going to look at. Get help from trusted people in an effort to think clearly about your situation. To do this is always appropriate, honorable, biblical, and wise. And I hope you understand what Pastor Helms is saying about our text this morning. Peter has written a general description, but it does not answer every nuance or perversion of this text that is going to arise. Submission and headship have been terribly abused within Christian marriage, and every difficult experience is going to need the help of the church in walking through a crisis biblically and with the wisdom of Christ. And therefore, I believe Mother's Day is a good time to bring this out in the open. It's time that the church talks about it. One more reason this text is suitable for Mother's Day before we press forward, and that is what children need today are moms and dads that are more like Christ. They need moms than dads that live Jesus Christ in the home. They need parents with healthy marriages who live as men and women who care about the lives that they are raising, and they care about pleasing Jesus Christ first and foremost. And where a Christian marriage is broken by sin or unbelief, even one faithful parent can have the rich gospel influence on the family that Christ ordains. Even one. Our culture is all about living for self. It's all about pleasing self first and foremost. And in my view, the heartbeat of the text we're going to look at is in verse 4. The very heartbeat. That which is precious in the sight of God. And what is more precious to God the Father than his own son, right? What Peter is calling women to do in this passage is to be precious in the eyes of God by being Christ in the home, living Christ. Their greatest passion, their first passion is the Lord Jesus Christ, not their husbands, not their children, not a well-ordered home, Not their reputation in the church. Their greatest passion is Jesus Christ, and they're prepared to live it. The emphasis here is on character more than methodology, more than following an author's prescribed patterns. Both in 1 Timothy chapter 2, here again in 1 Peter chapter 3, it is the woman who exhibits the character of Christ in the home who's going to have the greatest gospel-transforming influence on her family. And in the case of 1 Peter 3, that influence is on an unbelieving husband. But the main focus is on the character and conduct of a woman in her home and the gospel influence that her Christ-likeness can have. Now, while Peter is speaking about an unbelieving husband, and that's what's in view here, her children, this woman's children, are no less beneficiaries of her godly living. So let's turn our attention to the text now. 
with that lengthy introduction. Look with me at verse 1 and 2 as God calls this woman to show obedience in the face of disobedience. Peter opens his instruction to women by saying they are to submit to their husbands in the same way. In the same way as what? Well, if you back up to chapter 2, citizens of Christ are to submit themselves to civil government. And masters and slaves have a unique relationship as well, but the slave is to submit himself to the master in Christ. And in the same way, a wife is to submit herself to a husband, even an unbelieving husband. And that word submit has the idea of a woman being subject to the leadership or headship of her husband. That failed in the garden, didn't it? And it introduced sin into humanity. In the Greek language, that word submit is a military term that means to line up under with rank. This was an exhortation for wives to show obedience to their husbands. And we observe that this obedience is only to her own husband. This is not women being subject to men in general. This is women being subject to their own husbands in particular. Now, elsewhere in God's word, there is submission to the leadership of the church. There's submission of the gathering of the saints to the elders and pastors. There is the submission of citizens to government. But that's not Peter's purpose here. He has in mind the family structure of authority. And in addition, the old perverted idea of a woman being treated as a doormat in her own home is completely forbidden by Peter, as we're going to see in verse 7. But we'll get to there later. Verse 1 paints the picture of a Christian woman who is married to a man who is disobedient to the word. In other words, he has not received Christ's gospel by faith. He hasn't submitted himself to the gospel. He's rejected the gospel or is simply an unbeliever. And the implication is that in such a marriage where there is an unbelieving husband and a believing wife, submission is going to be difficult. It isn't going to be easy. In a good marriage, it's not easy. In this kind of a situation, there's likely going to be some suffering involved. And that's why we started in chapter 2 and verse 21. We look to the example of Christ. So here is a woman that is planted in that position. And she will be an example of Christ in this place where there's likely going to be some suffering and some difficulty. The believing wife is called to win her unsaved husband over to Christ without a word, Peter says. In other words, her obedient conduct is meant to be a witness for the gospel in her household. Now, this is not lifestyle evangelism, which I think is is kind of a perversion of biblical evangelism. Peter's point here is not that you shouldn't utter the gospel, because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The word of Christ. How beautiful are the feet of those that bring good news. The gospel must be preached. What Peter is seeing here is you're not going to win your husband by many words. You're not going to win your husband over by your own words. In other words, you're not going to be able to pester your husband into the kingdom of God. You're just not. So therefore, even though the gospel has been shared with your husband, show him Christ. Live Christ. Be Christ to him. 
Believers in the home are to preach the gospel of Christ. But it's the submissive conduct of a Christian woman that complements that gospel witness so that she is not left nagging her husband with too many of her own words. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes that when marriage is done right, according to God's design, it gives a beautiful picture or representation of Christ who is the husband and the bride who is the church, and the love relationship that we enjoy with Christ in redemption. And the picture of Christ's love is that of caring and nurturing for his bride, his church. True believers follow. We submit to his headship. But where there is an unbelieving husband, that testimony is not present in the home. Half of the picture is out, isn't it? The believing husband isn't there. But what is present? The submissive, believing wife. It's then the quiet submission of the wife that represents the gospel to her husband. When children look at a marriage that is Christian, both husband and wife are believers, they then get to see a picture of the gospel. But where there's an unbeliever in that marriage, the children are looking to what? the believing partner, the believing spouse, how important that believer is in the home. This is what Peter is stressing to the church. She is a picture of the gospel and how she walks in submission to her husband. She represents the gospel. The husband isn't representing the gospel at this point, but she is. And this further represents Peter's image here as he moves into verse 2 to describe the character of a Christian woman's obedience. What does that obedience look like? Her behavior, he says, is chaste and respectful. In other words, it's behavior that is morally pure, and since the unbelieving husband is to observe this kind of holiness and purity in his Christian wife, clearly she cannot submit to his demands that he or she joined him in his sinful acts, right? That tells us right away that this submission and authority is limited at best. She can only go so far with this unbelieving husband because before Christ, she must represent the gospel to her husband in her purity. And therefore, submission to man is always limited. Man is not the master. The wife's submission is to be in the same way as Christians submit to government and slaves submit to masters. How is it we submit to government? Well, we don't ignore the laws of Christ, do we? Government doesn't tell us how to worship. This past year, 2020, has been a challenge to the church. And we've had to make some decisions. Do we obey our government? Or do we obey Christ? It will be exactly the same way with this Christian woman. Yes, she's going to submit to her husband as much as she is able to. But she has a better king. She has another master. She has a Lord in her life that is more precious to her. She loves her Savior more than she loves her husband. More than she loves her family. More than she loves her nation. It is Christ first. 
we need to look no further than the apostles themselves who practiced much of their gospel ministry in defiance to government. And that's why they spent so much time in prison under public persecution. Many of them were executed because Christians must obey God rather than men. We submit as citizens as much as we are able. We submit also in the workplace as much as Christ permits. But submission and authority on the human level is limited, and it is limited by the overruling preeminence of Jesus Christ and his church. So it must be for Christian wives and mothers. Submission is not compliance with wrongdoing or unbiblical behavior. Their obedience to their husbands is subject first to their obedience to the Savior. And she is not only responsible for her own holiness, her own purity, she is also responsible for her children to walk in purity as well. And since God has placed them under her nurturing care, sometimes she has to make the tough decision, I cannot submit to my husband here. I must submit to Christ first. An unsaved husband may challenge the authority of Christ with regard to his wife and his children, and the wife is not obligated to submit in those cases. If she was, verse 2 would make no sense. Her purity and respectful behavior would make no sense. And you will notice it says, they observe your chaste, respectful behavior. They means the husbands of Christian wives, and by extension, it means anybody else in the household, like the children who are observing that behavior. The unbelievers in the home should witness a woman who is obedient to and pure before the Lord Jesus Christ, which compels her to submit to her husband where she is able. And this is because Jesus Christ is more precious to the believing wife than her husband and her children. And the reality is unsaved men, husbands, they may not like that. They may not like the wife's allegiance to Christ. They may not like the wife saying, I love Jesus more than I love you. And it shows in my actions. And the husband may say to that wife, I want you to stop going to that church that's telling you all this stuff. Can she obey that? No. Because of her love for the Savior, she cannot. Her desire to do what is precious in the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ, heaven forbid that she rejects her one true husband, which is Christ. Alongside her purity, notice, is a submission of respectful behavior. Chaste and respectful behavior. Now, the word respectful here is actually the Greek word phobos, where we get the word phobia. It's fear. And in the original wording, fear here is not an adjective. It's a prepositional phrase. So Peter is saying she is behaving in fear, in this element of fear, in this environment of fear, she is behaving this way. In other words, her behavior is characterized by fear. And one author points out that her fear in the home is to not live in fear of the husband. That's not what it's talking about. You go down to verse 6. Peter is saying, don't live in fear of your circumstances. Don't be intimidated by the fearful things that are going on around you. And therefore, in verse 2, the family that's observing this wife's chaste and respectful behavior is her behavior in living in the fear of the Lord, not the fear of man. 
And the reality is some husbands are going to be fearful with their abuses and so forth. But here, this is a woman that is submitting to the purity and the fear of the Lord himself. It's Christ first. The picture here is of a Christian woman that lives in purity and the fear of the Lord, and she submits to her husband where she's able. And this behavior is a gospel witness in the home to the unbelieving husband. It is also a gospel witness to the unbelieving children since all children come into this world as unbelievers. Her conduct has followed, then, the example of Christ. She's living Christ because that's her first love. Verse 3 and 4. Peter talks about the external. We talked about the flashiness of people dressing and adorning themselves in a certain way. It was that problem back in the early church. Peter turns the attention then to a common problem of that day, which was an obsession with outward appearances. And so he calls wives to be a gospel influence, not with the external, but with the internal, the person they are in Christ. And as stated before, this significant obsession is a problem for our day, even as it was back then. And we really can't say any longer, this is predominantly a female problem. I mean, look out the window, for heaven's sakes, and look how much men are pampering themselves to look very, very odd and strange. And I'm going to call it odd and strange because I think they look freaky sometimes. I'm often amazed at professional athletes, especially football players, and how much of their hard-earned money they, they use on their tattoos and their earrings and their hair. And what is it all doing? It is all saying, look at me. Look at me. This is our culture. Peter then approaches this from both a negative and a positive point of view. Verse 3, you must not adorn yourselves merely with the external. Braiding hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses. Now, it is unfortunate that some so-called Christian sects and legalists have used this passage to draw conclusions that women should be as bland as possible and only wear black with white collars. And they need to cover their hair and put it in a bun so it doesn't look attractive. It is unfortunate they made that text say that because this is not what Peter is saying. He is not forbidding women to dress up and look attractive. Peter was addressing a specific problem within the culture that had left a residue within the Christian community as well. The culture was promoting women to lavish themselves with adornments, extravagant measures to make their charms even more captivating. This was social status, and many times it was part of their religious cultic practices. The outward appearance meant social position, importance. Look at how I look. I belong to a leading citizen. My husband is a leading uh, government official in the city. How important I am. In In reading the commentary, there was one author that put down several quotes from people that lived during Peter's time and were witnessing what was going on back then. One of them caught my attention and amused me just a little bit. This one historian said of the women back then, so important is the business of beautification, so numerous are the tears and stories piled one upon another on their head. Do you know what the picture is they're drawing? And I immediately went back to 60s and 70s. What was the hairstyle back then? It's called the beehive, right? 
stacks and piles of hair upon hair. Now, of course, that was just a style at the time. But what they noticed here in that cultural trend is how they were lavishing themselves to seek attention over beautification. It had become a problem for believers in the church, and it was the external presentation that was being used to draw people to the person rather than the inner qualities of Christ. Now, to some degree, these are matters of just passing trends. But it also reminds me of what we often see when we turn on the televangelists, if you ever do so, and I wouldn't recommend it. But when the women get on the stage, there's just jewelry all over everywhere, overly made up with goop on their face and hair that's going everywhere. But this is not just a female problem. In our culture today, it's men too. And what Peter is not saying here is that men and women shouldn't make themselves attractive. They shouldn't make themselves attractive. He's not saying that. He's not saying that women should not wear makeup. They should not wear expensive jewelry. That's not his point. And honestly, we find Old Testament examples where women are commended for doing so. Take Song of Solomon. What are you going to do with that, where you've got a wife that is adorning herself to be attractive for a husband? Or you look at the story of Esther, who allowed herself to be made more beautiful so that she could enter into the king's harem. And then when she became the king's wife, she made herself even more presentable on the external to gain his favor so that she could come in and speak with the king. If we were to take Peter's words literally, or we would say legalistically, you're not going to be allowed to braid your little daughter's hair. You're you're going to have to take off the gold wedding ring because gold jewelry is now off limits. And just holding yourself to the text in 1 Peter there. And off go the dresses. No more dresses. So we understand this is not Peter's point. The point is not to make yourself look homely. The point is that a wife's gospel appeal toward her husband should not be the external. Without question, men are attracted to the visual. And many women have learned to get what they want through external appeal. But no unsaved man is going to be seduced by his wife into the kingdom of God. She cannot lure him to saving faith by her feminine charms. And by the same token... Moms are not going to be able to lure their children into the kingdom of heaven by being the best mom in the neighborhood or the finest chef in the church or the most organized or disciplined homemaker. She's not going to win her kids for Christ by giving them everything they want and giving them all the pony lessons, taking them to all the sports events. That won't win them to Christ. A woman's witness for Christ in the home will not be accomplished with the external charms and appeals. But Peter goes on, verse 4, let it be this. This is the positive. Let it be this. Let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Peter wants women to see the critical role that they have in the home with regard to their testimony for Christ and his gospel. And instead of being noticed For the external, focus on the heart. That's what Peter's saying. Focus on the heart. 
And what this does teach us, and I think we all, men and women, need to understand this about our Christian walk of faith. The spirit-filled Christian can change the inner person. Too many believers live with the false notion, well, I can't help how I feel. Because the spirit of Christ enables us to renew our mind, as Romans 12 points out. In our conference yesterday, in fact, the speaker was talking about Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 22, where Paul says, put off the old self. And then verse 24, it says, put on the new self. And he pointed out, we skipped the middle verse, verse 23, which says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. In other words, we can change in it from within. Why? Because we have the power of the indwelling spirit of God. Yes, we can change the inner man because Jesus Christ has empowered us to do so. He's not going to ask these women to change their hearts and their gospel focus in the home by the inner person if they couldn't do anything about it. The wording here in verse 4 is the hidden person of the heart. And this language is meant to describe the whole person that isn't in plain view. It's that which is determined from within. But notice the word hidden. It's not meant to suggest that people are not going to see that inner person. In fact, the very opposite is true. We could cut a woman open and spread her guts out, and we're going to see just more physical stuff, right? Her guts. So Peter is not talking about that kind of inner person. He's talking about not the physical matter, but the spiritual matter. We can't see that, but in a sense, when that person is imitating Christ and living Christ, yeah, we can see it. Let it be the hidden person in the heart with the imperishable. This is what comes out. This is what we do see, the imperishable quality of a gentle, quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. The heart for Christ has created a gentle, quiet spirit. God loves that spirit. And notice it's imperishable. It's not going to corrupt. That tells you this gentleness and quietness is what we're all going to be like in heaven for eternity. It's not going away. That's why it's so precious to God. This is a woman that's conforming herself to the image of Jesus Christ because we know that God is most pleased with his son. The inner desire of this woman is to be precious in the sight of God. The objective here is not to please men, but to please God. To please Christ because he is your first love. If you want to be a good wife, a good mother, love Christ first and foremost. That's what Peter is telling us. And it's going to be true for men and husbands and fathers as well. A good wife will want to please her husband to be sure. Good wife is going to want to be appealing to him outwardly. And there's nothing wrong with that. That can be even helpful in building relationships in marriage. But in and of itself, it's not going to draw that person to Christ by the external. And the truth is, an unsaved husband may not even appreciate these qualities. You realize that. You may have these qualities, wives and moms. And an unsaved husband or an unsaved child may not appreciate what you are in Christ. There will be times when even children are going to want a mom that is more open-minded to indulge all of their appetites. 
rather than a mom living in the home for the pleasure of the Lord. What then will make a woman useful as a gospel witness in the hand of God when she desires first and foremost to be precious in his sight, not pleasing in her own sight, not pleasing in her family's sight, not pleasing in the church's sight, but pleasing to God. And what Paul wrote to Timothy is that a Christ-like woman has a powerful gospel influence on the culture as she leads her children to Christ by her own faith, her love, her holiness, and her self-control. And Peter adds to that, that this same hidden person of the heart can be used to win even an unsaved husband to the Lord. And this brings us to verse 5 and 6, the fearful met with the hopeful. Peter uses the faithful women, women of the Old Testament to set an example for wives and mothers of our day. And these Old Testament women, they're not the Jezebels. They're not the Queen Vashtes or the Queen Makas of the Old Testament. This is speaking of the women who had what? Their hope in God. Their confidence was in the Lord God. And because of this hope, they adorned themselves in holiness. They clothed themselves with this gentleness and this quiet spirit that was precious to God. And Sarah is held up in Peter's mind as an exceptional woman in this regard. She lived obediently to her husband Abraham, showing him respect as the Lord of his family. One author pointed out the one place the one place in Scripture where we see Sarah calling Abraham Lord is when she laughed in her heart when she heard God say, you're going to have children. And you can kind of put yourself there in that moment. They're very old, both Abraham and her. She's chuckling at the thought that the two of them, these old ancient people, are going to have a child. And chuckling at the thought she's going to have to nurse and raise this child and run around the ball field with him or whatever she's going to do. And there's that old man. He's going to father a child, but she doesn't refer to him as the old man, does she? He's the Lord. In spite of what seemed like an impossible thing for Sarah and her aging husband, she obeyed nonetheless, showing him dignity and reverence. And Peter saw this Old Testament woman as a model for the ladies of the church today. So he adds that today's women can be like her, and the other holy women of God's word as they do what is right without fear over the alarming circumstances of life. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. There's that word fear again. No fear. Fear of the Lord, yes, But of the frightening or uncertain circumstances of life, no. This is a woman that's not troubled over even an unbelieving husband and the complications that go with that. Or troubled by children that walk away from the faith and all the complications that go with that. In fact, our keynote speaker yesterday was a pastor. And I was impressed by the reality that he had a couple of adult children that walked away from the faith. And he implied all of the turmoil that caused for him as a pastor because the talk among the congregation. Here's a pastor that has a couple of unbelieving adult children. But this man kept serving. He kept preaching. He kept pastoring. In spite of the difficulties, 
that come with that unsaved present, even among his own family. Sarah is an example. And I suspect that Peter brings fear into this discussion because of the difficulty and uncertainty that can come from being married to a man who is disobedient to the word of God. Fear can also come when the children who are raised in the context of the gospel turn away from Christ, rejecting his salvation. We're no longer certain that our children are eternally protected by the redeeming grace of God. And that can have its element of fear as well. But it's here that Peter shifts gears just a little bit because Abraham is not an unbelieving man, is he? In fact, in the New Testament, he is a model for faith. Justification by faith alone, Paul said, comes from Abraham because Abraham believed God and was credited to him for righteousness. Abraham was a model of justification by faith. So the fact that Peter shifts gears here from an unbelieving husband to now Abraham, who's a believing husband, suggests that women who are holy and faithful to the righteousness of Christ, who adorn themselves with that which is precious to God, have the same spiritual posture in their homes to an unbelieving husband as they would to a believing husband. And this is because their hope is not in their husband and his faith. Their hope is in God. And she does not live in fear of the uncertain and alarming things in life or the fearful, alarming things even in her own family. Her confidence and satisfaction is in God. Like the Old Testament women who they also hoped in God. Now to be sure, that kind of confidence And satisfaction in God is a progressive work. It doesn't just flip on like a switch. And very likely the difficult circumstances of life that have come into your life even have been used by the Lord to build up that hope in you. With some ladies, their husbands will see this. And they're going to be drawn to the Savior by your behavior. I was reading about Augustine's mom. And Augustine was looking at his mother. He had an unbelieving father. And he was a demanding man. And this woman submitted. He watched his mom submit in the fear of the Lord to Augustine's father all of his life. And it wasn't until the very end of Augustine's father's life, when he was dying and sick and decrepit, that he surrendered to the gospel. And then he saw the testimony of his mother all those years living Christ in the home. But with others who may have husbands who may continue to reject Christ. As Proverbs says, the children will rise up and call these women blessed. Maybe it's not the husband. Maybe it's the children that, that will observe this gospel testimony. And they will do so because they've seen in their mother the likeness of Christ. Do you see the message that is being encouraged to the church today? Moms, you have a magnificent testimony and influence on the world, on the community, on the culture by what God has given you to do right in your own home. And what the church should be doing and teaching and promoting is that institution that God designed for women. God also designed an institution for men, but this is Mother's Day, isn't it? And when the family matters have become difficult, this is a woman that will not falter with fearful circumstances 
but she will continue to put her confidence in God. Now, just a couple of things as we draw this to a close. We need to take from this text some truths that are helpful here, a summary, if you will. First, it is for us to see the importance that God has given to a woman's gospel influence in the home. The importance that God has given to a woman's gospel influence within the home. Our world is enamored with success. It's enamored with self-pleasure. It's not at all considered the most impressive thing for a woman to commit herself to be at home, raising her children and caring for the needs of her husband. Yet both Paul and Peter were moved by the Spirit of God to exalt the role of women in promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And though the world will not honor this, what could be more rewarding than introducing your husband or children to the Savior? What could be more rewarding than that? Not a career, not a bank account, not a doctor in front of your name, not a certificate from a university. Peter would say the most rewarding thing you can do is introduce your family to the Savior. Second, the focus of our influence should be the hidden person of the heart. The whole inner being should seek that which is precious in the sight of God. Not influenced by the culture, not given to self-promotion, not given to self-approval, not even to focus on what is most important to your husband or your children's desires, but living for the pleasure of the Lord. And this is where a wife and a mother will have the greatest impact on our family and the greatest impact by extension on our community. And again, we can put too much emphasis on our methods, our family structures, our disciplines, all of which can be helpful to a certain degree. But the greatest effect that we can have on our families is to be like Christ because of our love for Christ. It is the inner character that is most like Christ that's going to have the greatest impact on those around us. And one final word. Submission is a tool to be used for Christ, not abused by men. Submission is a tool to be used for Christ, not abused by men. In case there are those here who would love to pull out the old I am the boss card and use that oppressively, we've, we end this morning in verse 7. Because typically a man will say, woman, look at these six verses. And they skip over what God has told them as a man to do. Men, this morning, we can't lose sight of this. You husbands, in the same way, Live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Peter is clearly talking to Christian men here, since he speaks of being fellow heirs of the grace of life and prayers that are unhindered. God is not listening to the prayers of unsaved men, but God is also not listening to the prayers of Christian men who are oppressive to their wives. Unbelievers have no access into the throne room of grace. But believer or not, all men are accountable to God for how they treat his laws. And the laws of Christ ordain you to treat your wife with understanding, with honor, 
with gentleness and with eternal dignity. And remember, a wife is not to submit to wickedness that will corrupt her purity or the purity of her children. Submission is a tool to be used for Christ and not abused by men. Father in heaven,